Well, I invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. This morning we're going to read the great Christ psalm sung by the early church. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, it's really just been something that uh, is constantly the Lord keeps bringing me to throughout years. Every year it just seems like somehow I end up here. Philippians chapter 2, in honor of God's Word, I invite you to stand with me. So we read verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Now I ask, Lord, that your spirit be our teacher. Lord, that I just simply be uh, your instrument. And, and I pray, Father, for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit uh, that we might hear uh, what you have to say to us today. Father, we want to give you all praise, all glory, and we want to uh, celebrate communion in remembrance of you. Father, help us to tie all those pieces, to connect all the dots from your word to the table. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is it just me? Or is there kind of this, this low-grade sense of anxiety that's just kind of in the air these days? I mean, it just, it just seems like everything feels off. Everything is uncertain. Everything feels unsure. And, and, and there's this sense where we just kind of, you know, almost want to avoid the news because it just seems that everything combined just kind of piles on a, a sense of, of being overwhelmed by it all. Now, I'm not talking about the, the daily grind stuff because that's overwhelming enough in and of itself just trying to get through the day of of the things that we, we do on a regular basis. But I'm talking about this common feeling uh, of anxiety that, that I think that the world, especially here in the West, in America, uh, 
gives us this sense of, of that things are very fragile. That things are, are just always on the brink of absolutely shattering and falling apart. Uh, we just wonder what's next. What will tomorrow bring? And I believe as, as Christians, especially, that we are even more susceptible to this, this ethos, this culture, because, because we have the responsibility as followers of Jesus to, to speak the gospel into this chaos, into this culture. And yet we're living in this rather unprecedented time in the history of the church where our, our people that have gone before us, people that were basically, for me, were mentors in the faith, and yet they never spoke about any of this because they never experienced it. You go back and you look at the height of evangelicalism and the, the Billy Graham era and Christianity Today and all of the things associated with, with the churches. The churches were, were growing in America Baptist, the fastest growing denomination, and everything just seemed to be flowing in uh, the world of the church in America. That's no longer the case. And it seems that while the American church is decreasing, cultural outrage is increasing, and we don't know what to do about it. We don't really know what the solution is. You get all of these books that are coming out, because I read this stuff all the time, and it's all like, oh my goodness, the world's a mess, and you got a whole generation that's bailing on the church. Oh, good luck with that. It's kind of the sentiment. It's like, here's what's happening, and you're going, where's the solutions? What do we do about this? And so all of us, it seems, are trying to struggle to know how to navigate these uncharted waters. What do we do now? What does the church of the future look like? Well, I have become uh, convinced uh, that new times demand old solutions. Solutions. Uh, solutions are different than solutions. Solution is a word I made up that, that means we need more a revolution of the soul, a solution, that, that our, our pragmatic solutions that we used in the past are, are not going to work going forward. So we need solutions, not just simply Solutions. We need revolution of the soul. Deep change from within. Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, said this. I want you to listen carefully what he says because it's, it's amazing. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians if they will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's a stunning statement. He says the greatest issue of all the things that are happening in our world, he says the greatest issue 
facing the world going forward is whether or not Christians, the church, believers in Jesus Christ will become disciples of Jesus. We'll chew on that for a while. And I have fully come to agree on Willard on this. And that is both good news and bad news. In a sense, the good news is that it gives us a bullseye to aim at, right? You go, okay, out of all this chaos, at least now we have a solution, right? We have something to aim at. Because trying to fix this world and all of the issues that just seem to be going chaotic right now is beyond overwhelming. I mean, what should we focus on? Should the church focus on poverty? Should we focus on gender issues? Should we focus on, on the state of marriages in, in, in the church and country? Should we focus on missions? Should we focus on justice issues? Should we focus on racism? Should we focus on uh, the political climate of the day? Should we focus on theology? Should we focus on, on homelessness? Should we focus on the issues of, of money and finances? Should we focus on world hunger? Should we focus on the environment? Are you exhausted yet? Man, I'm exhausted just trying to think about it all. What did Jesus tell us to do? Well, he said to go and make disciples. That's what he said. And, and so that's our assignment, right? The bad, that, that's the good news. So we go, okay, okay, out of all the chaos, what we need to do, make disciples. The bad news is that we have made disciple-making optional in the American church, which means that we're going to have to convince a lot of people. We've made it optional. We have separated, for example, evangelism from discipleship. And so it's been like, all right, especially in Baptist circles, what we need to do is, is and we count the numbers. Man, we had so many baptisms this year. How many disciples did you make? Well, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? That seems to be optional. No one's even asking that question. And as a result of making disciples, uh, discipleship optional, that, that means that, that secondary uh, stage of the Christian journey then becomes like something you can either decide to enter into or not. And so we, we have created basically a, a two-tier church in America where there is this, this wide band of, of Christians in the church who have a nominal faith, right, which is basically a syncretism for the way of Jesus. We have created Christians who are consumer-oriented, who... Uh, who primarily, whose primary reference point for the spirit of life, the life in the spirit, is the self-life rather than self-death. Then you have, uh, in the church in America, then you have a minority that are actually following Jesus and living as disciples or apprentices. I would say that that's true in nearly every church in across, across America today. At the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said this in Matthew 7. This is the end of, this is his invitation, right? That when, you, when you work to a sermon, you work to a point of decision. And here's how he ends his sermon. 
Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it uh, are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find that one are few. Now, if you've been in church a while, you're familiar with that. We typically translate that verse to mean that Christians are the people who are on the narrow way and, and lost souls are the ones that have gone through the wide gate. They're on the easy way. The majority of the world is, is taking the wide road, and, but us Christians, we're on that narrow path. That's how we normally translate that. But we need to put it in its context. The context is at the conclusion of a sermon about those who want to live life in the kingdom. This is an invitation to the kingdom life. Who wants the narrow gate that leads to flourishing? In other words, this is not just simply a fork in a path out there in the world in which we all must decide if we want to go to heaven or hell. Right? This is a pathway that runs right through the church. Amen. The narrow and hard way that leads to life is the way of discipleship to Jesus. The easy road is the way of non-discipleship, the way of nominal Christianity. And if Dallas Willard is right in his assessment, which I believe he is, that the best thing that we can do, that the people of God can do going forward is creating or converting, I guess, nominal Christians into disciples of Jesus. That we need to connect that part too because we have stopped connecting the dots. It's like, all right, here's what happens. A person is saved and now you are going to be a Christian and go to church and and, well, you should probably evangelize people. But there's dots out here, and, and we have severed that. And so we need to connect the dots, reconnect the dots back to discipleship. And so the, this series on character matters has, has really been about that. These virtues are not just... Uh, things to put on your spiritual to-do list. Uh, yeah, I probably ought to be more like that. Forget the oughts and the shoulds. We talked about that last week. Right? No, these are virtues that reflect the way of Jesus. These are virtues that disciples are progressing in. So what if the command to follow Jesus that he gives us, the command to follow him as his disciple is, is actually an invitation to us to live the life that we really want. Maybe it's not so much that Jesus is going, look, I, I'm looking for the Navy SEAL Christians. right? I'm looking for the Green Berets. I'm looking for the standouts. I'm looking for the disciples. The rest of you down here, but I'm looking for a few good men. And women. No, I don't think it's what Jesus is saying at all because he's calling all of his people to, to follow him 
into discipleship. But what if that invitation into discipleship is an invitation into the life that you, deep in your soul, really, really want? What if this is a gift? What if the challenge to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him is a disguised invitation to enter into a life of flourishing and abundance? We look at that and we go, oh my goodness, he's calling us to die. That sounds pretty difficult. What if he's going, yeah, but you're not going to believe where it's going to take you. Well, that is exactly what I believe it is, and nothing represents denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and and following Jesus like the virtue of humility. Humility. And so this is the last virtue uh, that I want to look at in this series, because only a humble soul has any possible chance of denying themselves, taking up a cross, and following Jesus prideful person, (laughs) that is an impossible statement right there. So in those words, Jesus is calling us to a humble solution, a humble solution, a soul revolution that is marked not by greatness, but is marked by smallness and hiddenness and prayerfulness. And that that's the life that leads to flourishing. Well, we are commanded several times uh, throughout the Bible that we are to be humble, that we are to humble ourselves. Let me give you just a a, a sampling. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that may he exalt you at the proper time. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's James, that's Peter, that's Jesus. Three different people. It's not one person saying something similar. It's three different people saying the exact same thing. And I'm struck by uh, the fact that each of these verses is, is a command And every single one of them has the same promise attached to it. You see that? Each has the promise of flourishing. If we humble ourselves, then he will exalt you. It's almost like he wants to exalt you, humble yourself so that he may be able to do that. Because if you do the other route, uh, then then he can't or he won't. And so while we think that the way to flourishing is, is uh, in the world is by promoting ourselves or by power, Jesus turns that whole concept on its head, right? And says, no, flourishing is a result of humbling ourselves, not promoting ourselves. It's going low, of becoming the least. Jesus, by the way, is our greatest example of that. By far, he's our greatest example of what it means to be a humble person. And that's what we find perfectly illustrated for us here in Philippians chapter 2. Now, here in Philippians 2, Paul has a specific aim in, in what he's writing here, and that is to create a flourishing community in the church in Philippi. 
Right? So apparently there's some disunity among God's people. And disunity is always the result of a lack of humility, without exception. Uh, uh, so there's this sense where uh, uh, you, you're called, he's calling us to a life of self-forgetfulness, of putting other people first in order to create a, a kingdom community. And so in order to create a flourishing community, uh, humility has to be in place. And thus he highlights Jesus here as the prime example of what that looks like, right? Because you can't be prideful and follow Jesus. Uh, pride and Jesus are antithesis of one another, right? Uh, you can't do that. And so to follow Jesus, you, you have to uh, change the way you think. And this whole passage is about rethinking. He's like, set your minds on this. Become of one mind and think like this. So he tells us, what are you supposed to think like? Well, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. <laughs> right out of the gate, right? Right out of the gate, he pushes against the American way of achieving success. Right from the start. Ambition. Ambition. Man, we are Americans. We are a people of ambition. We, pro we praise and promote the ambitious, right? While Jesus exemplified a way so radically different than that, that ambition is seen as a vice, while we have made it a virtue. To follow Jesus, we, we have to rethink everything. Right? So we've been so conditioned by the American dream that Jesus' words sound almost foreign and strange to us. Or we ignore them. We go, okay, well, in the church, we'll, we'll say that, but out there, it's dog-eat-dog, -dog, and in the world, it's a whole different ballgame. I don't really see him dividing up our lives like that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Which brings the question, is ambition sinful? Is it sinful to be ambitious. Well, well, the key is the adjective, right? Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is the pursuit of making ourselves important, significant, and happy. And the issue is not those things. Those are good things, right? Those are good pursuits. The problem is not the, the aim, but the way we go about getting it. So the selfish part means that we're doing it without God. It's about us. And we're the ones accomplishing it. Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus ambitious? I would say so. I would say he was ambitious to bring glory to his father. I would say that he was ambitious to do his father's will. I, I would say that he was ambitious to complete the mission that his father had given him. I would say he was ambitious towards making his way to Jerusalem and the cross. He wasn't letting anything get in his way of accomplishing that mission. So I would say yes, but there's a big difference in that kind of ambition and a selfish ambition. Paul defines selfish ambition in this passage by its complete opposite. He says, but in humility, count others more significant 
than yourselves. It doesn't mean to count everyone as, as better than you or more important than you. Right? Jesus never thought of himself as insignificant because that's the conclusion you would have to come up with. Right? It means that he put others before himself, which is stunning because of how significant he is. It said he was in the form of God. He was complete deity. He was, he was one and the same with the Father. He was part of the eternal trinity, the eternal Son. And yet, having that kind of significance, he still put others before himself. He never pulled rank. He was equal to God, but he didn't... See that as something to be grasped, the passage says, which means something to be demanded, something to, to it means to pull rank. Well, you know who I am? Kind of attitude, right? He didn't use his, his position, his power as a platform, at least a platform for power. He used it as a platform for humility because it says he emptied himself emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of, his, of his, his, his deity, but of his rights, of his, his right to grasp on to who he was. He, 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 he gave up his rights, his heights, his might, we could say. He became a servant. He became a servant. He, he took uh, off the crown and the robe, and he stepped off the throne, and he lowered himself into our world, and then he lowered himself to the point of death on a cross. His whole ministry was like that. His whole ministry was uh, one of volunteer subordination to the Father. It was a whole, a whole life of humble service even though he was God. John 5, 19 says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He's totally in submission to the Father. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He surrenders his own will. I'm, I'm, I'm only serving the Father. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 50. I do not seek my own glory. His whole life was one of, of humility, one of sub, sub, subordination to the Father. And everything that the world values in people... And everything the world tells us that we need to be valuable, Jesus lacked. Let me show you what I mean. How about his heritage? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? John 146. How about his social class? Is not this the carpenter? Mark 6:3. How about his education? The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? John 7, 15. How about his wealth? 
Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Matthew 8, 20. How about his reputation? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Matthew eleven nineteen. How about his family, his family support? Not even his brothers believed him. John 7, 5. How about his rank? For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table, the one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. 27. How about his popularity? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It's Isaiah 53. About how he died. Did he die an honorable death? Two others who were criminals were led away and put to death with him. Luke 23, 22. Everything that the world says, this is what a person is that we are to respect. Right? This is a person that has got it all together. Jesus liked all of it. Everything that we esteem, he had none of it. Now that shirt certainly should make us think twice, I think, about the kind of people that we esteem and, and what kind of character traits we esteem in others. He, he never cared about those things. He never cared about the applause of other people. His sole desire was to please his father and entrust himself completely to him. That's Jesus. He surrendered his right to exalt himself, and he left that up to God. God will exalt me, which he did. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there it is. There it is. Do you see it? Right? There is the flourishing that comes after the humility. There it is. Exaltation follows humility. It's true in the life of Jesus. It's true in the promises that we have. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Now to believe that, right, that's going to require a lot of faith on our part. Because everything in me, right, everything in me does not want to deny myself. I don't want to deny myself much of anything. I certainly don't want to cross. And yet it seems to be required to follow Jesus. And so I have to trust that denying myself is going to result in flourishing, that it's going to be worth it somehow. right? And so it requires that we give up self-promotion and, and say, you know what, whatever happens, whatever people think of me, uh, you know, when it gets to the funeral, if there's four people there and none of them like me, that's great. Uh, what's, what matters is what's going to happen when I stand before Jesus. Now that's hard to do, right? That's hard to do sometimes because we all want to be loved right now. We all want to be loved. We all want to be valued. We all want to be understood. We all want to be accepted. We all want that. 
our hearts were made for that because our hearts were made for community. And yet, our sinful nature, it seems, has sabotaged those desires and has disordered them so that instead of allowing God to fulfill them, right, we try to do it in and of ourselves. And so while our hearts are made for community, our lack of humility ends up destroying community because we make everything about us. And so we end up sabotaging our relationships because we, we hide, we self-promote, we put ourselves before others, we create false selves to display to the world. Right? We Instagram some kind of ridiculous reality that's not the reality. Why? Why do we do that? We do it because we long to flourish. And we long to appear as though we're flourishing. And we've been deceived into thinking that we have to create that for ourselves. But instead of creating it, we're actually inside inwardly uh, not experiencing the community our heart was made for. This is why genuine humility is so difficult. It's such a challenge. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking of ourselves less. But man, our shadow side, our our fallen nature, uh, puts self on the throne. We all have this throne uh, within us and and our hearts, and we want to put ourselves on that throne. Matthew 20, one of my favorite uh, stories, is the mother of the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, sons of thunder, right? And, and the mom, this is embarrassing for these guys, mom approaches Jesus and, and asks if her two boys can sit on the throne, right? She wants them on a throne on Jesus' right and left. Typical mom, right? She's a typical mom. She wants her boys to be successful. She wants her boys to flourish in life. She wants them to end well. And so she's like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if my boys sat on the right and the left hand of Jesus and his kingdom? Now, the other disciples are miffed at that, right? I could hear the jokes. Oh, yeah, I got your mama to speak for you. And so Jesus calls his disciples together because now he sees this teaching moment in this disunity among the disciples. And so Matthew 20, Jesus calls them together and said, well, you know that the rulers and the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. In other words, you know that the ways of the world are to climb the ladder and to be above other people. But whoever in, in, in my world, in my kingdom, whoever would be great in the kingdom must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. My kingdom's different. It's sort of like Jesus saying, look, man, those, those seats are still up for grabs. The right and the left, those are still up for grabs, and they are going to go to the greatest servant among you. We're going, oh, we got to climb the ladder to get to those seats of prominence. And Jesus says, no, 
Those are reserved for the ones who go the lowest. He flips everything on his head. And I want you to notice that really Jesus never faults them for having a desire to be great. He's not, that's not the problem. He doesn't fault them for the desire to be first, to be prominent. We all want to win, right? He, he, they want to be uh, prominent. They want to be admired. They want to be respected. They want to be valued. We all want that. Jesus doesn't fault that. He says, no, that, that's not the problem. The problem is how we go about gaining it. And Jesus says, while the world says, promote yourself, the kingdom says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because the world's way will lead you away from your heart's desire. Well, denying yourself, it's a great paradox, denying yourself, taking up your cross, will lead you to what your heart was made for. It's the solution. The solution to gaining what you truly desire by uh, attaining it through humility. Jesus is inviting us to replace the American dream with his kingdom dream. The dream of true and, and lasting flourishing. Isn't that what the American dream is, is all about? He's going, well, yeah, I got the same goal, but it's, it's a different way to get there. God wants to fulfill his kingdom vision through our life, through your life. Right? He wants you and me to change the world through the upside-down, completely countercultural way of humility. So here's what I want to do. I want us to consider some practices, just three practices uh, that the Spirit will use, the Holy Spirit, because you can't do this in your own strength. Right? It requires you to humble yourself in order to be humble. <laughs> and so you have to rely on the Spirit, right? But I want to give you uh, a three, three practices that we can do in conformity with the Holy Spirit. Some of these you're not going to really get excited about because no one gets excited about humility. Though we should. The first one is confess. Confess. Obviously, you know, I, I mean by confess, obviously that means confessing our sins to God and seeking his forgiveness. But I actually have something quite a bit more in mind than that. I, I'm, I'm talking about confessing to one another. Now, this is what I call the practice of vulnerability. It's in the scripture, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins, who? To who? To one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Wow. That, that healing that James speaks of, it may be a physical healing. It may be emotional healing. Oftentimes, it's, it's both of those things. Psalm 32, 1-4 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sins the Lord does not count against them, and, and whose spirit is no deceit. And then, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was, was uh, what does it say? I can't even see it. Sapped as in the heat of summer. That's, that's, that should be relevant, right? It, it, basically what he's saying, he's going, man, when I kept my sin to myself, when I just kind of lived this hidden, hidden kind of thing, you know, the, the stuff that I done, did, uh, but I never told anybody about it, then I just felt just shame, and I felt a heaviness. And it literally had a physical effect on me. There's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score, which states this, as long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you're fundamentally at war with yourself. Secret, unconfessed sin has physical ramifications. We're, we're whole creatures. We're whole beings. So, so our soul and bodies are, are linked up together. So what is the solution here? Confess your sins to one another. Confession brings healing, it says, so that you will be healed. It literally brings healing. Uh, Tyler Statton said this, a maturing community is a confessing community. Not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. Compare that to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the, the pious fellowship. He says, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everyone must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living lies and hypocrisy. The fact is, we are all sinners. A community that, that truly believes in the gospel is able to be vulnerable before one another because we go, you know, this wasn't ever about me. I am a mess. That's why I've needed Jesus. Even with Jesus, I'm pretty iffy. And we struggle. And why in the world we need to keep that from one another when it's all, we're all doing it. We're all struggling. We're all in this thing together, right? So we avoid being honest because we fear rejection from one another. How does that happen in a, in a gospel-centered church, right? That is, a, not, that, that is a culture, a church ethos that is based on law, not on gospel. And so we need to strive, we all need to strive to be safe people who give off the fragrance of grace. And we do that by being vulnerable people. Oh, you too? You struggle with that too? We need to be honest about that. I, I, I can never trust anyone who is not broken with my brokenness. Right? People who just kind of have it all together and, you know, they just speak like they're from, you know, Sinai. And you just go, ah, I can't relate to you. And so practice number one is to cultivate, uh, to cultivate humility is to confess. Number two, number two. 
Number two, pray. Humility is the prerequisite for prayer. Right? Prayerlessness is pridefulness. Prayer is communion with God. It's dependence on God. If we're not praying, we're not depending. Prayer says, Lord, I need you. I'm not independent. I can't do life without you. I can't do anything without you. There is no flourishing without you. I love this passage, Zephaniah 2.3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Well, you will be, not perhaps. It is certain. The humble seek the Lord. The humble seek the Lord. The humble pray. And by seeking the Lord, they are seeking humility. It's like this, this ring circle of, of humility because they are seeking the presence of the Lord. And nobody comes into the presence of the Lord and remains prideful. Listen to how Thomas Keating describes the presence, as he calls it. This presence is so immense, it's so humble, awe-inspiring, yet so gentle, limitless, yet so intimate, tender, and personal. I know that I am known. Everything in my life is transparent to this presence. He knows everything about me, all my weaknesses, brokenness, sinfulness, and he still loves me infinitely. This presence is healing, strengthening, refreshing, just by its presence. It is like coming home to a place I should never have left, to an awareness that was somehow always there, but which I did not recognize. Isn't that beautiful? Who wouldn't want to enter into that, right? But that's what prayer is. It's entering into that. It's entering into the presence, which we don't have have to when we get there we don't have to pretend we don't have to perform we don't have to have the right formula right we're fully known and we're infinitely loved in that presence that's what prayer is right but it, 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 the question is if prayer is that if it's so beautiful why is it so hard for many of us because it is i'll tell you why it's because prayer is war Prayer wages war against the flesh. It wages war against the devil. And so you're always going to have resistance from both. It's war. And war's not easy. But here's what we need to keep in mind, all right? Here's what I want you to keep in mind this morning. When prayer's a struggle, or we feel like we're not very good at it, we need to remember that God is looking for relationship not well-prepared speeches. Right? When it comes to prayer, God isn't grading essays. Right? He's talking to children, his children. If the Bible tells us anything about how to pray, it tells us that, that, that God prefers the rough draft full of rants and typos over the polished and edited version. C.S. Lewis said this, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. And just read the Psalms. You want to learn how to pray, read the Psalms. 
Because those, those guys were honest, man. You talk about some raw, unedited prayers in there. Some of them are so raw that you think maybe that should have been edited out, right? Listen to this rant from the psalmist against his enemy, Babylon. Psalm 37, 9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Well, there you go. That's in the psalm. That's in the Bible, right? So much for love your enemies. Is that the example? You go, okay, well, then I can pray like that. Yes and no, right? That's, that's not the example of, of what we should pray, but it's certainly an example of how we can pray, which is honest. Honest and raw and unedited, right? Sharing your, your genuine true feelings with God. Prayer is talking to God about what's on your mind. That's prayer. Right? It doesn't have to be uh, stuff that we deem as being spiritual. Everything is important to God. Everything. You talk to God like a friend, which means you can vent, right? You can ask, you can laugh, you can cry, you can listen, and you can unload. You don't try to sound more pure or more holy or more spiritual than you are, right? That's how he felt. He didn't go before God going, I know that what I would prefer is to dash them against the rocks, but I need to pray for my enemies. Lord, uh, I just love those people. No, I mean, that's not, what, that's not what was going on. He was honest. And so we need to take the vice of John Chapman who said this. This is very important. He says, pray as you can and don't try to pray as you can't. You go, that'll sound very profound. Oh, it is. Pray as you can. Don't try to pray as you can't. If you can't pray for an hour, don't try to pray for an hour. If you can only pray for five minutes, if that's what you can do, pray for five minutes. Right? Pray for five. If you fall asleep when you pray, that's what you can do. If your mind easily wanders, then pray until it wanders. And then pray about where it wandered to. You pray as you can, not as you can't. Humility is not just praying, but it's also the humility that accompanies it and the way that we do it. Lord, I'm not very good at this, but I'm just going to share my heart. That's it. That's what he wants from us. So humility is not just in praying, it's in the humility in the way that we do it. Practice number two is to cultivate humility through prayer. Last one. That's to serve. Serve. You knew that was coming, right? Just prior to, to uh, Jesus praying in Gethsemane, where he said, not my will, but yours be done, right? The Lord of glory wrapped a towel around himself, and he stooped down, and he washed his disciples' feet. And when he was finished, he told his disciples, I have set you uh, an example of which you should go and, and do as I have done for you. In other words, Jesus is saying, so you're my disciples as my disciples Disciples do what they see 
the rabbi doing, go do that. Go be foot washers. Uh, be the kind of people who stoop down and wash feet instead of those who demanded others wash their feet. Be foot washers. Matthew 20, 28, we read this earlier. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is like, go do that. As Jesus' followers, we're to follow him to the towel and the basin, as well as the cross. Romans 12, 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that awesome? Let's have an honor honoring contest. Who can outdo the other? But our serving is to extend beyond uh, the walls of the church as well, right? We're called to serve the least of these, the poor, the vulnerable, the oppressed, the lost in our society. Jesus said concerning the poor, the sick, and the hungry, he said in Matthew 25, 40, 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these least of these brothers, you did it to me. Jerry Bridges tells this great story of a pastor who was uh, on a subway and he, he sat next to a drunk. And the inebriated man kept offering him his, what was ever in his jug, you know. And you want a drink? The pastor politely said, no, no thanks, I'm good. A few minutes later, hey, can I offer you a drink? He said, no, no thanks, I'm good. After about three or four times, the, the man recognized him as a pastor. He's like, oh, I've kind of seen you before. And he was just goes, oh, you're, a, you're that pastor. I've been to your church. And then he felt shame, immediate shame. And he said to him, you must think I'm the most despicable man on earth. And the pastor replied, actually, I think you're incredibly generous. Looking for the best in people, encouraging people, rooting for people, praying for others, seeking the flourishing of others, finding the good points, right? This is the way of humility. The way of pride says, yes, I think you're despicable. How dare you offer me that? The way of Jesus is the way to find the place to the heart. To become more like Jesus, we have to descend to the way of humility. And fortunately, Jesus didn't leave us to, to our own devices to try to accomplish that on our own. But he has equipped us with everything that we need to get there. He died in our place. He put his spirit within us. He gave us his word. He gave us the gift of prayer. He promised to listen and answer. And he gave us a meal. He gave us a meal. And probably I think maybe the best way to, to respond to a message on humility is to take communion together. Right? It's the supper for the humble. The supper of the humble. Because the 
the Bible tells us that we have to take it in a worthy manner, right? But to take it in a worthy manner means that we don't have to be good enough or worthy enough to take it. We don't have to be pure enough in order to consume it, to be worthy to take it. It's not what it means, right? To take it in a worthy manner means that we have to come to the table humbly. That we come having confessed our sins because we're sinners. We come asking for forgiveness. We come grateful, so grateful to God for his body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. That's how you take it in a worthy manner. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's a promise, right? Confess your sins and he will make you spotless. That makes you worthy. So let's humbly go before him and let's confess our sins. Let's just take a moment before we come to the table and make ourselves worthy by simply confessing our sins and receiving his grace. Father, we thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, can you go back to that, that 1 John passage? 1 John 1, 9. Let me ask you a question. Uh, did you confess your sins? Okay, I want you to notice what just happened. If we confess our sins, I confess my sins. He then enters into the situation and he is faithful and he is just, which means that you can totally count on this to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins, then you have been made spotless in his sight. That's the promise that he's given us. And so now you can partake of this meal in a worthy manner. I want to invite our ushers to come, our deacons to come as we prepare the table. You got anybody on this side?
The night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered his disciples together at most humble meal. And he said, as he, he took the bread, he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. I want you to take it and eat it, consume it in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the covenant, the new covenant. The new covenant which says that our relationship with God is now based completely on what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He says, when you drink it, I want you to remember me because this is my blood that has been poured out to make that covenant a reality. So I invite you to come now and partake of the Lord's table.